podcast where we untangle the stories that shape private and public discourse. I'm Jasmine Hall. I teach courses in literature, film, and other storytelling media at Elms College. And this is my co-host, William Wright, a freelance storyteller. We share an interest in uncovering the often surprising ways in which human perceptions are influenced by the stories we hear. In this episode, we are going to discuss conspiracy theories. Well, thanks for that introduction, Jasmine Hall, if that is your real name. Hmm. I'm not sure that I even can see who you are. How do I know that you're William Wright? (laughs) That's a good question. Considering the fact that we're using a digital medium that can easily be altered, my voice could be altered, or my... If I'm not really me, my voice could be altered to sound like William Wright. My image could be altered to look like William Wright. I know. Even if you were here in this same room with me, how do I know that my senses are not lying to me? Like that famous experiment about the gorilla that intrudes upon the basketball game. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. That's exactly right. You might actually be in a gorilla suit. (laughs) (laughs) Well... Have I made you suitably paranoid for this uh, episode now? Oh, I didn't need any help. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, good. Then let's just go ahead and get started. But what, what we want to do first, before we actually get into the topic this week, is uh, we want to address some concerns from last week, as we're going to be uh, prone to do. And uh, along those lines, I want to encourage all of our listeners to leave a comment on uh, our podcast, uh, letting us know what you thought of the show, what uh, ideas you have, what kinds of things you would, or what kinds of things you would like us to talk about uh, next, perhaps. And uh, at the beginning of each show, we'll try to spend a little time addressing those issues. But uh, Jazz, I know that you had uh, some particular concerns after our first podcast that you wanted to share with the listeners. Yes, um, I realized after doing the podcast and. Um, talking about it with some people, that some of the main points that I was trying to get at might have been lost in going over details, um, because there are so many fascinating details in that story. Right. Um, But I did want to go back to sort of highlight some of those main points. Um, One of them was the reason that I I chose um, doing something about the Middle East based on that book in the first place, was that it challenged a lot of my assumptions about people being on opposing sides. um, Yeah, mine too, mine too. And then just being fixed in those opposing sides for all of time. Um, (laughs) So that's obviously wasn't what happened. And I, I think that people in the West generally do look at the Middle East as these sort of opposing factions of... Uh, the Muslims and the Jews that have been fighting for thousands of years and they've hated each other for thousands of years. Right, since the days of Abraham, they've been at each other's throats. Right, and so that, there's nothing we can do about that. It's it's useless to try to think about that. And, And that really denies the particular history, for instance, the the years of Ottoman rule in which as we were saying, people were living there without fighting each other. Um, right, right. And um, the history of World War 
one and the involvement of the West, um, and particularly I think the, the two things that came up there was that uh, people do have preconceived notions about the way that military power will be able to influence um, what happens in a particular region, especially right. when you're part of the, the group that has a lot more power than the other guys do. Yeah, yeah. And then that the higher the cost that actually comes up, because it it's never as simple as it seems like it's going to be, Right. the more that people are are unwilling to settle, the more they want to increase their demands for what they get from the other side. Yeah, the longer the, whole, the longer the whole thing drags out and the more people are killed by it, the more uh, the more resistant to settling the dispute people get. They just want to win. Yeah, yeah. So then um, because of that, uh, when we look in particular at the Middle East, there are a lot of unintended consequences of this belief that military power can accomplish goals in a straightforward way and also a denial of the kind of loot grabbing that came about because people wanted to increase their demands because the, the cost had been so high. Yeah, right, right. So the, so the main thing that we're trying to get at, really, in all of our shows is this sort of big-picture perspective. I mean, we have, to, we have to kind of get down to the, to the details many times to explain where the big-picture perspective is coming from or to challenge the big picture that we come in with, because as you pointed out, uh, you and I both had some preconceived notions challenged um, by looking at some of these things. But, but the point isn't the details themselves. The point is, what is this big picture narrative that, uh, you know, that we have, that we bring to a situation that conflicts with other narratives of the situation, including narratives that uh, take more into account the actual historical uh, events? Right, right. You know, conspiracy theories are very much... Uh, about conflicting narratives. Yes. <laughs> I mean, it's or really trying the perfect... Or trying to deal, do away with the conflict in the narratives. Trying to... Ah, that's yeah. right. But um, before we get started, I think I should point out to our listeners that according to uh, the independent polling group Public Policy Polling, and this is from a poll they published earlier this year, 37% of U.S. registered voters believe that the phenomenon of global warming is actually a hoax. 21% believe an extraterrestrial UFO crashed in Roswell in 1947. Uh, 28% believe that a globalist power elite is, as we speak, conspiring to dominate the planet under a so-called New World Order. Now, these are significant numbers, especially given how close federal elections can be in the United States. And this is far from a complete list of outside-the-mainstream ideas floating around amongst the electorate. And, you know, of course, these are the ideas that are commonly and aptly called conspiracy theories. And such theories are so prevalent in the U.S., actually, that, that uh, human behavioral scientists have taken notice, and the subject has been seriously studied for a number of years with the seminal work on the topic published in 1965 by Richard Hofstetter. But more recently, in an article published uh, in May of this year in, in the New York Times, uh, scientists uh, have observed that people who believe in conspiracy theories have a few things in common. And let's review those quickly. Uh, for example, if a person tends to believe one conspiracy theory, 
they tend also to believe others. And that's true even if the theories contradict one another. And we, we're going to talk about that, I think, a little bit later. Uh, also, those who believe in conspiracy theories tend to be cynical about the world and have a very low opinion of their own efficacy in it. And they often show a strong ideological affinity towards democratic principles. Now, to me, probably most troubling among the common characteristics of conspiracy theorists is the tendency not only to refute out of hand evidence contrary to their theory, but uh, also the tendency to interpret contradictory evidence as if it actually supports the theory. Now, scientists are unsure if a general feeling of powerlessness causes belief in conspiracy theories or if conspiracy theories cause and then perpetuate a general feeling of powerlessness. But <laughs> one observation seems pretty clear, and, and, and this one concerns me a lot, and that is that the fear and paranoia that accompanies belief in conspiracy theories does, ironically, leave believers open to political and economic manipulation. So in other words, uh, they're afraid of being politically and economically manipulated. So they, um, through that fear, they subscribe to these conspiracy theories, and that actually makes right, them yeah. more vulnerable to political and economic manipulation. And this obviously can have and has had and will continue to have some dire real-world consequences. Now, uh, we want to make clear that um, during this episode, we're not really going to debate the veracity of a specific conspiracy theory. It's, this right, isn't yeah. about, well, here's a conspiracy theory and this is why it's wrong or anything like that. Uh, what what we're, uh, we're trying to address here are the formal aspects of conspiracy theories. Uh, again, we're, we want to stick with the big picture here. Um, but that said, we will be addressing reasonable challenges to conspiracy theories because remember, we're going to be talking about... Um, how sometimes a conspiracy theory can contain um, uh, statements that contradict each other, uh, and so on. So we will be addressing reasonable challenges to the theories, but we're not. This isn't really about what's true and what's false. This is about conspiracy theories in a in a big picture general sense, and what role they're playing in our society. And and we're also going to take a crack at figuring out ourselves what the root causes might be, uh, even though scientists are a little bit baffled by this. Now. One of the inspirations behind us deciding to tackle this particular subject uh, uh, today was uh, some recent experiences Jazz had. And, and Jazz, why don't you go ahead and, and tell us about those? Yeah, um, when I was thinking about what to do for our next podcast, I was generally thinking about um, the way in which uh, narratives that simplify might also distort things. Mm. And this made me think about my recent experience being someone who lives in the suburbs of Boston with the Boston Marathon bombings. Now, I wasn't at the marathon, but I did have friends who were at the marathon who luckily escaped being so close that they got hurt. Nobody right. that I knew got hurt. Um, I also live not very far away from where um, the eventual um, capture of uh, the younger Tsarnaev brother was made. Um, so I was pretty close to the scene. And, and your neighborhood was locked down like yeah, so many neighborhoods were. Yeah, we were in a shelter-in-place situation. Um, right, right. And when I 
returned to school after all of this, where I teach, which is about an hour and a half away, I was surprised at the large number of people who already believed uh, various conspiracy theories about what had happened. Uh, probably the most extreme would be that uh, it hadn't happened at all, that it was all some cooked up event in order to achieve, uh, I don't know, uh, stronger military power by the part of the uh, Obama administration or um, anti-gun uh, regulation. I, I don't know what the various reasons were for promoting these ideas, but they were already out there, and this was only a day or two later. Um, and then when I was reading about the Tsarnaev brothers, I found the real ironic part of this was that part of their motivation was that they believed the conspiracy theory that 9-11 had been staged by the U.S. government uh, in order to promote uh, war against Muslims in the Middle East. And um, so it was kind of a feedback loop going on where conspiracy theories seemed to be part of what caused people to commit violence, and then as soon as the violence had been committed, conspiracy theories were arising to explain what had happened. Right. Um, and in thinking about that, um, again, actually this last week, and thinking about simplified stories, I, I was wondering why it is that uh, no empirical evidence seems to matter. All empirical evidence can, in a way, be rejected. And what it reminded me of um, was actually the, the kind of thought experiment that Rene Descartes uh, used to come up with the um, idea, I think, therefore I am. Right. Which I'm sure lots of people have heard of that, um, but I do want to point out here that you don't really have to know the philosophical underpinning here. It's just something that is a story that I'm familiar with, and I think it helps to place it in a particular historical time as to why would this start to happen more and more around the time of Descartes and uh, the Enlightenment and humanism. Why is it happening at that time? Why do we start to get more and more conspiracy theories? Right. But just to, to very quickly outline the thought experiment and the way that I thought it related to conspiracy theories is that Descartes thinks, what if everything around me is some kind of fiction? That is, you know, what if there is, what if other people don't really exist? What if they're like robots all being controlled by some evil genius? Um, Named Jasmine Hall. <laughs> That's part of my plan. I've often wondered this <laughs> myself. And I'm sorry, go ahead. Even, uh, even the existence of his own body, he begins to doubt that maybe he's just a brain in a vat someplace uh, having this kind of illusion of all reality. He gads, how did he figure it out? <laughs> and the only thing that he can, can um, trust in is the existence of the I, the I who is thinking. So there is this uh, big gap between everything else that is, the external world, any kind of objective reality. All of that could be thought of as being false or fake. 
and the only thing that um, he can be sure of is his is his own subjectivity. Right. Um, and it made me think that that kind of a story shows up a lot, not just at conspiracy theories. It shows up in popular culture. Um, there's a Mark Twain story that's kind of built along these lines called The Mysterious Stranger, in which the main character eventually uh, finds out that nothing exists in the world but himself, and he keeps making up stories in order to entertain himself. <laughs> or, um, you know, The Matrix is a kind of a similar mm. idea. Kind of, yeah. You know, that we're all in you know, the reality that we're experiencing isn't really happening. We're all in these vats someplace and being controlled in order to make us think that the reality is happening. So, I mean, that, all of those things made me wonder about, well, what was it about that period of time in history that, where you started to have this big split between uh, my own subjective experience and that being the only thing that I can trust, and then also the external world being something that could always be manipulated. I mean, espe right. especially because at the very same time, you're really having a, a growth in the idea of um, truth is not something that's just handed down to us from the king or from the church, but has to be... Um, something that we discover through our experience of the objective world, through science, through the scientific method. And, right. And right. those two things seem a little bit incongruous, but um, I began to wonder if they were actually connected. Yeah, I suspect that they are. And, and you know, another aspect of this is um, a desire for certainty. You know, in a way, uh, he was asking... What can we be certain about? Right, right. But but to ask that question is to put a value on certainty that, you know, isn't necessarily, you know, intrinsic. You know what I'm saying? I mean, to to put that kind of value on certainty is a decision somebody makes. Basically, you know, you you don't you don't have to feel that certainty is so important that you should spend a huge amount of time <laughs> trying to figure out what we're certain about or how we can be certain. Mm. And, but a lot of philosophical conversations, uh, in, you know, in the last uh, couple hundred years have been centered around this notion of well, what what can right. we know with right. absolute certainty and how yeah. can we know it? And one has to one has to question why is that kind of certainty valued? Yes. Yeah. Why? Why is that kind of certainty important? And as you ask, what about that time period uh, makes that kind of certainty, the the main thing that people seem to be talking about, such that it, it evolves and it becomes such a big part of our modern life uh, mm -hmm. also. Um, actually, I might like you to get back to that point about um, why, what's the reason that needing absolute certainty, what what's the advantage of that? Um, but I did want to add in here a, a different way of thinking about certainty that's from a different philosophical perspective. Um, this is uh, uh, Ludwig Wittgenstein, and again, you don't need to know anything about Wittgenstein, but I think he makes a fairly simple point here that to have these ideas of absolute certainty 
and absolute doubt, on the other hand, that is that everything is to be doubted, and that the only way to counter this doubt is through some absolute, unquestionable certainty that you've kind of taken, uh, you've removed any sense from which uh, certainty and doubt can be understood, because you've now said the only way that you can have certainty is without any doubt at all, by removing doubt entirely. Well, if you, rem if you remove doubt entirely, then you really don't have certainty either, because certainty <laughs> is something that right. the opposite of which is doubt. If you don't have both of them, then it doesn't make any sense. And he says the, the kind of certainty and doubt where certainty can be doubted and doubt can become certain, those are the sorts of things which are almost the framework of our understanding and we're denying the framework of our understanding. Um, and I think that leads to some of the things we've talked about before, which is that our understanding is something that's an exchange between right. people, not something that, so for instance, Descartes is trying to come to this understanding all by himself, yeah. so that you know, it's, it's just completely solipsistic. Right. So what, where does that where does that put us then? I mean, what what is what is the motivation then? I mean, if 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 thinking about these things and 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 trying to get this certainty, and of course it eludes us because the whole question in some ways doesn't make very much sense. And yet, you know, philosophers continue on this quest. It's like the Holy Grail, you know, mm, certainty. Yeah. Well, this this philosopher didn't quite find it, or now that we think about it, this philosopher was uh, a little backwards in their reasoning or they were wrong, so we'll take a crack mm -hmm. at it. And then that philosopher thinks they've got it, but another philosopher later says, well, no, that didn't work either. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, so why in engage this quest when when it's, 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 it doesn't even make sense what they're yeah, looking for? I, I'm not, I mean, that to me is the big question which I've been trying to think about is, is why does it come up at this particular period that, I mean, I, there, there's always been skepticism, but I think the kind of skepticism that you get in the modern period, and by modern I mean starting um, maybe around the Renaissance and a little bit later, but the, that kind of skepticism, it it just seems so prevalent now, and as we were saying, that philosophers are thinking about how do you relate the person to the external world? This is how do you make that connection between those two things? So what is it that got lost between those two things? How did there become this huge gap between the subjective and the objective world? And, and by skepticism, we specifically mean skeptical about the object, objective yeah. reality and about... Like what we know is what's inside our heads. Everything else, we we're not sure about, right. and and this is what we're we're yeah, talking about. We're talking about skepticism. So that um, when we're talking about who we are, it's not even um, it's not even our brains in a way because our brains are physical. But it's some oh right right. It's some kind of disembodied um, consciousness. Well, and, and, and this idea persists today, and I mean, people talk about their real self yeah, inside yeah. or who, who they are really, which seems to be completely divorced from 
their behavior, their their physical right. interaction with their physical the, world, the family. Um, that they were born even into. even separate from their yeah, yeah even separate um, from their thoughts and motivations. And yes, certainly for, even separate from culture and society. Um, well, maybe I can talk a little bit about what I see as sort of happening um, in that historical period and how it connects to conspiracy theories. And then maybe um, if you have ideas about why it might be happening at that particular time, or we can start talking about that. Okay. Um, well, I'll do my best. Okay. Well, I mean, I think one thing that was happening with uh, humanism and the growth of the idea of individual rights is that you began to um, lose the idea that particular social codes should determine who a person was. So it wasn't because you were born into a particular class that wouldn't have any defining relevance to who you are as a person. Um, so you begin to have this idea that you define somebody as free, as being free to make choices as far as what you're going to, to do in the public world, like voting. Um, your freedom comes from having no influence from the external world. Um, again, to sort of throw in a philosopher at the time, um, Emile Rousseau had this idea that only if people are completely free of external conditions like family, like culture, they can only enter into the social contract by doing that because otherwise everything they do could be questioned. Well, you're doing this because you've ha been influenced by some <laughs> outside force. <laughs> so, um, You know what I find interesting about mm -hmm. that? I, I, what I find interesting about that is how if, if you do something and you're being influenced by some outside force, how does it follow that it's not you? Right, right. I mean, well, I think that's the, what is this you? Exactly. Thing? That's it's exactly really right. It's really hard to define what this you is if you are not the product of your upbringing and your culture and the particular body that you have. It's... Well, but but also that the you doesn't include those things. Yeah, yeah, that's like right. in, in a in a perfectly legitimate way. Yeah, uh, George Herbert Mead um, outlined uh, the self as containing the I, the me, and the generalized other. And the I you can think of as the self as subject, and the me you can think of as the self as object. Right. So so the I is is how you how you. The self is you're acting in the world and you're being the person doing things. And the me is uh, the self as, as things happen to you and people interact with you and so on. But then there's the generalized other. And what the generalized other is, is it's the, it's the social context, cultural, you know, it's all the things that belong mm. to everyone around you as part right, of right. who you are, as a legitimate part of who you are. It, it doesn't contradict who you are. It doesn't control who you are. It doesn't... I mean, the, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in me, there's no real philosophical struggle between you and other. <laughs> that you are the other, and the other yeah, is you, right. and I it's mean, all a part of what it means to be human, because there wouldn't be a self without others. 
that's that's a big part of what George Herbert Mead says too is that you know if you if you if you leave a child alone and it, first of all the child won't survive at all of course yeah. but let's let's say hypothet- hypothetically the child could survive till it's 20 years old it wouldn't know how to speak it wouldn't it wouldn't have any characteristics in its behavior that we could call you know human or tw- uh, adult human yes yeah so the human beings this notion that there's that human beings are these indivisible indivisible individuals all by themselves through some kind of process this happens i don't know what it would be is is false uh human beings are uh, other human beings are always part of what any individual human being is and yes, so yeah. you know this notion of the the you or the you know the individual human being is just it's kind of absurd actually and yet a lot of philosophers presumed this idea and and that informed their entire body of philosophy and i think that because it was based on what i think is an empirically false idea um the philosophy was was kind of weak <laughs> and had all these flaws and errors in them yes yeah and and um just tangentially because you were i was thinking of this while you were speaking it's such a lonely position to be in this kind of uh, extreme <laughs> alienation where you, who you are has no connection to other human beings or to your uh, culture or any so i think actually that feeds into the feeling of helplessness that we're talking about or powerlessness because if you're so far removed from the social conditions which you think are having uh, are are trying to manipulate you what can you do about it you're you're just this uh, disembodied conscious right right you know you know that uh, you know how people have said or there's kind of a say I don't know where it comes from but people say well you leave this world the same way you come into it alone mm. And it, it it strikes me how empirically false that notion. I mean, you, you certainly aren't alone when you're born. Right, this is true. <laughs> I mean, the, your mom is at least <laughs> there, so you got that. And um, and even even in death, I mean, um, for me personally, at least in terms of how I understand the sociological realities, the sociological empirical realities, even if someone you know they're in a like a one car accident and there's nobody around uh the the people they mm. love are close to them in that moment i mean mm. if you follow what i'm saying uh you know any philosopher or any person who would argue oh but they're not physically present so it's not the same i think anyone who really thinks about what it's like to be away from family over the holidays or 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 what it's like to miss somebody knows that no the the the, the presence of the people right, you love right. doesn't cease when you're not physically with them, and um, and that's that's a function of that uh, generalized other. You know, we ourselves are composed of it's uh, the self is a very complex thing, and in that is is dwelling all the people we know, all the people we love, and they're there's a sense that we're always connected. Uh, yeah, all the experiences we've had with those people shape who we are in the present, even if that person isn't even in our lives anymore, if they've, if they've passed on, or they're still 
present in in us. Sure, uh, think and of not not in some kind of I don't know uh, mystical, mystical way. way. No, uh, in, an, right. in an actual way in which they helped form the person who we are in the present. That's exactly right. I mean, think of think of the conversations you can have with someone that you know well in your head while they're not around. And perfectly convincing. Again, it's not because some mystical force has, has injected a piece of their spirit in you or something like that. No, it's the way human beings relate to one another. It's, it's an empirical fact of how human beings are. So this notion that you're born alone, you die alone, or really that you're ever in any sense alone uh, is not an empirical fact. Uh, if if you feel this kind of alienation, then it's something that's being sort of imposed on your psyche. Um, and, you know, that can be a lot of things. Trauma can cause that. A lot of things can cause that. But whatever the cause, uh, you know, fear and paranoia are, you know, very common symptoms. And, you know, as we've just uh, seen from what scientists have learned about conspiracy theories, fear that fear and paranoia can lead a person to believe uh, conspiracy theories that um, that don't really tie with the empirical evidence. Like you know, getting back to the to the bombings. I mean, one of one of the th- the reason you were saying that some of the theories you heard were extreme was that, well, for example, that the whole thing was staged was that okay, well. Uh, we have video evidence of what happened. Um, the, the the people who think it was staged probably aren't going to argue that that the event didn't look like it happened, right? Like it wasn't on a sound stage or something, and then it was sent to the news, and everybody who was actually at the Boston Marathon are like, "Wow, I, I don't remember that. I didn't see that happen." No, that there there had actually been something staged at the actual uh, uh, Boston Marathon is what's being claimed, probably. Okay, so let's let's say that's true. How many people had to be involved in this huge conspiracy? And the more people, I think anyone can understand the 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 scientific reality that the more people that are involved in the conspiracy, right. the more likely that it is going to be exposed. So, so it seems really unlikely that that was staged. I mean, incredibly unlikely, so unlikely that most people don't believe it was staged. And it, it really makes you wonder how the people who do believe it was staged can maintain that belief when the empirical evidence seems to not support that idea. Yeah. Well, um, you reminded me of two things. One was um, in the reading uh, for doing the podcast, I there was a quote from G. Gordon Liddy, which I might not get the quote exactly right, but uh, for those of you who don't remember, he was one of the Watergate conspirators. So... He was an actual conspirator. <laughs> <laughs> well, and he actually did time, right? He, he did he, do time, yes. And yeah. um, in talking about conspiracy theories, he said that most conspiracy theories tend to be false because bureaucrats are incompetent and people can't keep their mouths shut. <laughs> um, that you, you know, you'd have to have everybody on the same page, all the media, all the governmental institutions and we can see right now that government doesn't work very well in harmony they're definitely not all on the same page at the moment Um, no well and there's always going to be someone who for political reasons is opposed to what is going on right right and there's going to be some you know maybe 
let's say the uh, you know let's say that all the the government uh, departments are are evil and they're doing all these conspiracies. Well, who's to say that that this evil department in the federal government wants to see this evil department succeed? You know. <laughs> yes. So so when this evil department <laughs> stages a, a, a horrible event, this evil department is going to think, ah. I will see to it that that evil department goes down and then I will take over <laughs> instead. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, why well, doesn't that happen? It does happen. Why wouldn't I that happen? Not even uh, evil departments competing with each other. But I mean, we've, we've seen recently with um, WikiLeaks and with um, Bradley Manning and with uh, Snowden mm. that, yes, things that the government is doing, they do get exposed. Um, I think um, I have one idea I have about this is that we sort of have this model of the way that power works that's anarchic. It's based on a, a much older kind of power in which you had uh, a monarchy and power is very centralized um, and it usually can be much more unified because it's either one person or a very small group of people who have that power, um, but its reach was not that great. So that if you're in some of the outlying areas of right. the country, you know, the, the powers that be can't see what you're doing. Right, right. Um, but now we have a kind of power that's much more based on accumulating data and surveillance. Right. So it's very far-reaching, but it can't be that kind of single-intention sort of um, story that a monarchy would be. You've got all these different institutions, like you said, different departments might compete with each other. So it it would be very hard to have both the uh, breadth of reach and the single intention that most conspiracy theories uh, posit. And that and that's what really challenges some of the empirical uh, claims of it. But but yeah. now now let me make something clear though that. You know, I'm an anarchist, so I, I'm not a huge. Uh, I don't. I'm not a uh, big on trusting. Well, anybody. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, and, and certainly, um, and, and certainly, we we, we both acknowledge that there are conspiracies and that yeah. they do happen. Um, but but uh, and they get exposed, and and sometimes they're pretty shocking. But here, let me point some things out about you know the stuff that Snowden revealed. Um, it wasn't as if some of that information uh, or inf information similar hadn't been uh, suggested before or referred to before by other people. It, it's uh, so it S Snowden's revelations aren't an example of well, here's something that was was done and kept really uh, as a, kept as a tight secret, and now it's only it's only now being revealed. The thing about Snowden's situation is that uh, the the information's never been revealed by somebody like him. Uh, it, it's really a lot about who he is, where he was, um, how credible his information is, and in fact, so credible that um, you don't have a lot of denials uh, on the part of the federal government about it going on. I mean, you have some, but but previously, uh, information like this uh, was leaked here and there or talked about here and there, but it wasn't from a really credible source, and the government was able to sort of deny it. And uh, also the way our media works today, 
which our media today is really obsessed with reliable sources and all this stuff. Um, you know, if, if, if a media outlet thinks that, that um, no other media outlet's going to think that a certain source is reliable, well, they'll just ignore it. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so when it comes to revelations from, from Snowden or whatever, it, it isn't really evidence that these things were happening and, and nobody knew it. it it's uh, basically right, a lot right. of people knew this type, type of thing was going on. It's just that it didn't come out in a way that was going to attract the popular media or force uh, authorities to acknowledge it. Um, and there's a truth uh, at the base of, of modern fear and paranoia, which is that, um, you know, the way the political system works and the way corporate America works, there are a lot of things that, or at least seem very strongly to be out of the hands of ordinary people. Right, that's true. Yeah. Uh, that things that, that uh, they should feel are in their hands. Yeah. And so that... Uh, that is that's kind of a reality of uh, of our present life that uh i think is is uh it has some truth to it obviously some empirical truth however that doesn't justify you know spinning that reality into a, a fantasy of uh you know uh people behind closed doors you know six people controlling everything that happens all over the globe yeah i mean uh, one thing i said to um when uh i was confronted with a lot of the conspiracy theories about the Boston Marathon was that I, I said to people, you know, the government can do lots of bad things without having everybody on the same page in the way that you're describing. I mean, the attacks by the use of drones, for instance, that's not a, a great thing. Um, but it's out, you don't need to have this uh, story in which. Um, there's this worldwide conspiracy in order for bad things to happen and for you to be justified in feeling angry about them. Um, That's a very good point. Uh, and also, a lot of the things that, that uh, a conspiracy theorist says is accomplished by these conspiracies can be accomplished, and often are accomplished, by <laughs> more mundane means You know that we actually see going on out there. And as you said, those things that we know are happening, that even the uh, official uh, officials acknowledge are happening, those are perfectly uh, <laughs> enraging, you know. Th yes. th th those yeah. are perfectly awful and bad and, and perfectly adequate for us to get upset about and for us to try to do something about without us uh, getting upset about something that we have very little empirical evidence to, to actually think is true. Yeah. You know, one one concept in in science that a lot of people might not be aware of or or might not understand is the concept of um uh how uh, elements in a in a situation can interact with each other in sort of a feedback way to create spontaneous order. Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. What's So what's that called is um Well, strange attractors? Well, that so. it, you know, chaos theory, complexity theory, and, and, you know, to, to explain it as briefly as I can, um, the, well, the example I like to use is, is uh, a computer simula simulation called Daisy World. And again, not to get too caught up in, in, the, uh, in, the, in the details, but in this uh, computer simulated world, there's only a few elements. Uh, there are white daisies, black daisies, and there's the sun mm -hmm. that helps them grow. 
and uh, the white daisies and black daisies uh, share the same environment, so they kind of have a, a feedback loop kind of interaction. And by that I mean uh, when when the sun is very bright and there's a lot of heat, the white daisies can reflect some of that heat away right. so that the heat doesn't get too much for the flowers to grow. Uh, if the heat isn't high enough, isn't uh, then the black daisies can absorb a little extra heat so that they can still grow even if there's inadequate heat. And what happens when you let this simulation run, and let's say you, you set it so that the heat in the system will gradually go up, the, uh, the growth of the daisies uh, fluctuates with more white daisies and then more black daisies and so on to, in such a way that even though in the system you have the heat going up and up and up and up, the daisies bring the heat down and control it. For a, for a period of time until the heat gets so much that it overcomes the system. So th without it being programmed into the simulation, the daisies in the simulation are controlling the temperature of the environment spontaneously. Right, right. Uh, there's nothing mystical about it. It's not magic. It's just this is what happens when elements in a system are interacting in a feedback loop kind of way. A spontaneous organization can come up. And mm -hmm. what I'm applying this to is... You know, there are a lot of people in the United States, well, you know, U.S. culture is very status-focused. Uh, and then that's, that's actually the, probably the most basic characteristic of U.S. culture. And, be, and being a status-obsessed culture, it has hierarchies, right? Which means there's someone, someone at the top of the hierarchy. And mm -hmm. the person at the top of the hierarchy, their two main jobs are going to be to do whatever they can to maintain the status Mm -hmm. obsession because without the status obsession there's no hierarchies and they're not at the top of it and also to maintain their position at that top place now think about this for a second everybody who is at the top right. is going to be engaged in those same mm -hmm. two endeavors to keep their spot at the top now they don't have to go into a room somewhere and talk about it <laughs> The, the fact is they're, they all want the same thing. And since they all want the same thing, a lot of times, very unintentionally even perhaps, what one person is doing is going to benefit the other person who's at the top, just, just as a matter of course. And that establishes a feedback loop relationship between one person at the top and all the other people at the top, which means that they spontaneously begin to create uh, a reality and a force that that looks like just like the daisies it looked like they were conspiring to control the temperature it looked like they were cooperating but they weren't it's just there's some systemic um reason behind that's it. right there's a systemic reason you know so if someone observes the people quote unquote at the top and they think to themselves wow everything seems to work out for them mm. i mean even beyond what you would think so What's causing that? Well, there is, it is probably true that everything seems to be working out for them. And, some, and what is causing it is this systemic self-organizing principle. But if you're not aware of how these self-organizing self principles work, then what else do you have except to think, well, they must be going into mm -hmm. <laughs> some closed room somewhere. But the thing that blocks people from understanding the self-organizing principles isn't merely that it's a scientific concept that they haven't heard of. It also is 
The self-organizing principle presumes interaction. It presumes you're taking all of these uh, disparate elements and you're saying they interact in this feedback way. And we in American culture don't tend to want to look at things in terms of interaction. We want to look at it in terms of individual agents. Yeah, and, and labeling them. And then right. once they've been labeled, that accounts for their behavior. Exactly. Um, That's exactly I, right. I was actually thinking about this when reading uh, some of the scientific research talking about the kinds of personalities of people who believe in conspiracy theories. And one of the uh, people that we were reading said something along the lines of uh, people who are lower class will be more likely to believe in conspiracy theories. Um, and then they said this might be because uh, people in that class are less well educated. And if you're better educated, of course, you understand about empirical <laughs> evidence or something, I guess. Um, and that seemed to me to be sort of the, not looking at the um, systemic interaction, which is, okay, if people are the lower class and they are getting less well-educated, aren't they feeling more powerless? Um, aren't <laughs> right. they feeling like they have less of a say in what's going on? So it's not because somehow they don't understand empirical evidence. Um, like the educated people who are more, <laughs> who have gone to, I don't know, Ivy League colleges do. Um, it's more that part of the system means that you have this hierarchy and they're on a lower part of the hierarchy, and then you have this feedback loop where conspiracy theories are tending to, instead of ac giving them actual power, it makes them feel more powerless. Right, right. Which just serves to make the feedback loop even stronger. And yeah, uh, yeah. It, it, so, I mean, that's another thing that, that people might not understand uh, about the scientific reality of these feedback loops and these self-organizing systems is, uh, you know, they can... For, for individuals who are in them, they can be like upward spirals or downward spirals. And by that, I mean they can be something that, that takes your bad situation and keeps making it worse. Or they can be something that takes your good, situ good situation and sort of lets it sort of feed back yeah. on itself and, and get better. Uh, and certainly, it, it's, this isn't just something that affects individuals, obviously, because for these feedback loops to form, you have to have more than one person. And uh, so it's it's uh, it's all about the interactions and not always intentional interactions uh, between these various uh, individuals. And but see, that's again, that's where the conspiracy theory steps in, is that, you know, uh, the notion is that there's some kind of intention behind all of this when there not only does there not seem to be any, but there doesn't need to be any. And also another thing about. Uh, not understanding these uh, these feedback loops is that um, these feedback loops, like I say, they're sort of scientific principles. They're things that you mm -hmm. can use yourself to make your situation better if if you want to. So if if you if you don't understand if you're in a in a in a situation where you're at, in the lower status group of people and you don't understand that you can actually form one of these feedback loops with other people in your community, other people in your situation, uh, a feedback loop that can perhaps propel you uh, forward and, or upward or whatever to a better situation, if, if you're not aware of that, then you're not going to engage in that kind of 
uh, activity that could help you or help other people. Yeah, yeah. In fact, conversely, what's going to happen is you're going to feel all the more alienated, not just from the people in the upper classes, but from people in your class. And that's also, uh, you know, making the feedback loop sort of drill into the ground and, and keep people in whatever situation they're in, which ultimately serves um, serves this, the hierarchy and the status-oriented aspect of, of culture. Again, not because some conspiracy makes it so, but because that's how these feedback loops work. Yeah. But, it, of course, that raises the question of where it's all going to go, and that gets a little scary. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but um, um, yeah, I, th I think um, well, just thinking about wrapping up, looking at the time. I, one thing I was uh, thinking about getting back to popular culture is how you can see that, if anything, I do think that the negative feedback loop is operating here, so that people tend to have this idea that they are isolated individuals more and more with no impact on uh, the social world. And um, one example of that that I can think of that I found when I was uh, researching a paper a couple of years ago was, uh, this is, was when Avatar came out. And there, were, there was this huge uh, outpouring mm. of, uh, I guess, really admiring that movie. People got very attached to that movie. Not not everyone, but a, some whole segment of the population got very emotionally involved in that movie. And um, I read a lot of letters to the editor in response to movie reviews that talked about that emotional response. And I remember one young man writing in and saying that, you know, he was 24, he worked in an office where he worked at this cubicle, and he felt so far removed from other people or for having any meaning or purpose to his life at all. And he dreamed about being able to live in the world of that movie because to me that movie was about, now I have problems with that movie and I don't think it's the greatest movie ever, but <laughs> I do think that it had this message of everyone being connected in some way, including connected to the world that they lived in. They were they connected to the plants, they connected to the animals. The planet, And yeah. that mm -hmm. this connection gave them purpose. And just the idea that this m man mm. felt so alienated and the lack of connection was also lack of feeling of meaning or feeling of purpose was, that just struck me and really uh, stayed with me. Well, you know, I think it's, I realize that's just one person reacting to one movie, but uh, if you look around in popular culture and in how people interact and in what people are saying, you know, there's there's whole a whole subculture of people who uh, believe that um, they're not actually human, that they actually are some other species of mm -hmm. being, whether it be an animal or whether it be a mythological creature or whatever. Uh, you know, there's... There's a lot of these things going on where um, people who are feeling disconnected from, for lack of a better term, the real world, are feeling yeah. connected to some other world, some other reality. So strongly do they feel this connection that, you know, to other people, they would insist that they actually are from this other place. I mean, they're convinced of that. And, the, and uh, you know, I'm not here to argue with them about it, but I do think it's an interesting... Uh, 
interesting sort of phenomena going on in the world today of this sense of disconnection. And I find it interesting that that people respond to this disconnect, this alienation, by finding someone something else to uh, connect to. In other words, uh, anyone who would argue that such connections don't really exist or they're illusory or they're only things that weak people come up with and need, I think is completely disproven by the fact that the more mm-hmm. we culturally try to get people to think that being an adult means being absolutely independent and individual, right? The the more we teach people in the society that that the 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 nature of adult human beings is being disconnected, the more they seek out these connections in other places and in other ways, which to me just proves that the opposite is true. People are, are connected. They're always connected. There's no way you can even sever those connections. And mm-hmm. uh, to to try to do so, um, you know, is is going to damage people emotionally and mentally. And right. it's going to lead people to believe things like these conspiracy theories that have no... Or I should say I shouldn't say no, but very little empirical uh, basis. And not only that, but they're going they're going to take contradictory evidence and think that it it actually supports their view rather than contradicts it. Yeah, I think the the most obvious ones of those in some of the theories that we read were people who would both believe that somebody's death had been engineered, like um, Princess Diana or Paul McCartney or Amelia Earhart, and that those, that person was still alive. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I, again, no offense to any of our listeners who might hold that belief, but, you know, to someone outside of it, you have to admit that seems a little odd that the person is still alive and yet their death was engineered. Well, I suppose the, the point is that whoever attempted to engineer their death failed, and the reason that we don't, uh, the reason they're still alive, but we don't know it is because, well, of course they're not going to announce they're still alive because that person might try to kill them again <laughs> or something. I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know what the, whether the people try to uh, put them together. They might. I mean, I, 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 I've heard, might. I've heard some conspiracy theories that like you say, have these sorts types of contradictions. And when you challenge them, there is sort of a, a there's some reason uh, there's a yeah. winding road you know, but yeah. it, it all amounts to uh, an idea that can't be tested. I mean, right. that's another aspect of this is a lot of conspiracy theories are constructed in such a way that there isn't there isn't an empirical way to disprove yeah. them. You, they can't be disproven by empirical means. And and sometimes the conspiracy theorist believer thinks that, well, because this is impossible to disprove, that must mean it's right, which, of course, isn't how it right. works. I, I do want to mention here. Uh, just momentarily the kind of flip side of this, which I also think is damaging, which is this belief that um, you can have completely objective stories that are not at all um, influenced by social conditions like um, the particular historical period that you're in or what culture you're in, and that this is what science really is. Uh, Science Mm. is this kind of being able to see things through an idealized version of reason, uh, a version of reason which I don't think actually exists, in which you see things clearly without any kind of bias, without any kind of effect of 
any of those things that we were talking about which um, go into the experience of making who you are as a person. Um, yeah, you know, that's an excellent point and one we really have to make here because we've been talking a lot about empirical evidence. And what we mean by that is evidence that, you know, two or more people can look at and they can agree, yeah, this this serves as uh, as evidence that this thing happened or didn't happen or whatever. Uh, so, so we're 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 talking about uh, things that can be uh, scientifically tested, but neither you nor I believe that science is a, an enterprise that is all about some pure objective reality and describing it in a way that's free of all bias and and you know social implication because that's just not true. Well. It's not only not true, it's not possible. So I think right, the way possible. that you can make your scientific story as objective as possible is not to deny that there are social conditions, but to try to be as aware of them as you can. That's right. In fact, you know, that's what peer review is all about. It's about, uh, you know, it's about you being accountable for any of the biases or whatever you bring to it. It's about other people being able to look at your work and, and, and trying to tease those out. But of course, no matter as you said, no matter how much you take a, a piece of scientific work and subject it to your own uh, self-examination and examination of others, you're never going to rid it of you know whatever social or cultural uh, biases or perceptions inform that scientific opinion. So that's what makes science a, a continuing and right, constant right, right. Uh, process. You're never you're never done with it. Um, Part of that has to do with a limit of our actual knowledge, of course, but but a huge part of it has to do with the fact that um, every story we tell, even a scientific story, is a social construction, and it with all the baggage that that's going to tend to have with it, and so we just have to keep going forward, keep moving forward, and and uh, allowing our scientific theories to be examined and talked about and, and so on, but. Yeah, that's an important point to make because even though we're talking about empiricism and we're talking about evidence, uh, we're not here holding up science as some kind of uh, pure type of storytelling that is better than any other kind of storytelling. It's just, it's a human endeavor just like any other, and it has, it is also prone to social and cultural uh, influences, and that that's that's great. I mean, that's human. That's humanity. That's the way humans work. There's there's nothing wrong with it. Um, but right. as you've been pointing out, there there is a sense in our culture that, you know, the social and the cultural influence is, is bad and oppressive. You know, how much of this feeds back to, like, Freud and this id, ego, and superego and, and things like that, do you think? This notion that what, the notion that the social and the cultural is oppressive and we have to push back against that. And then, you know, there's this self-actualizing thing that, you know, Jung came up with that, you know, we... And that a lot of therapy kind of uh, took that afterwards, the notion right. that, well, what you need in the therapeutic context is to be self-actualized. That is, to under realize yourself as this complete thing, you know, that's independent of all these other influences, and then you can be your real self or, or whatever. I mean, yeah, I'm, I don't know if... if... Freud ever thought there was this idea of an actual real self that could be no, revealed. No, okay, that's true. Through, that's, um, yeah, that's um, a good point. But I do, I, I do think it goes back to sort of earlier ideas from from humanism that somehow t- you have to 
you replace the idea of God and God not being subject to any kind of social, cultural, historical, temporal, any kind, you know, transcends all of that, to the, the human self as being the origin of meaning and value, and so that self has to transcend right. all historical, cultural, you know, any kind of um, influence. Right, right. Well, and, and, and the, uh, the elites of the Enlightenment and the Renaissance uh, certainly had a justification in their personal lives to think that way because obviously they wanted to think they were better than everybody else. But I think when that disseminated to the masses, uh, only when you had the Reformation in the printing press, you know, and that idea, you know, started to resonate mm -hmm. with, with ordinary people. And, and I mm -hmm. think that really gave that idea a boost because otherwise, you know, be, I mean, because think about right. it, for, for elites to think that about themselves, yeah, yeah. you know, uh, that goes back a long ways, <laughs> you know, probably from the very beginning of elites, you know, 10,000 years ago. But, but you know, for for it to become this huge cultural thing that mm -hmm. that is part of the day-to-day -day life of, I would say, every American, and certainly it's, you know, it's, they're encouraged to think this way through our media and our advertising and everything like that, romance narratives and film and so on. Uh, you know, I think, I think that, I think you had to have the printing press, as we were talking about before in this market structure where, you know, people think this copy will sell and they sell it and, and ordinary people start to learn how to read because it's a phonetic system. So it's pretty easy to catch on to how it works and literacy increases. And, yeah. you know, pretty soon these notions of, of independence and, yeah. and, and personal value, which, you know, it led not just to the Reformation and people re revolting against the church, but revolting against the state in, in the revolutionary things that uh, happened in the late uh, uh, 18th century and early 19th century. So, yeah, I think, I think that was critical to, to getting this to, ha to reach its, its fingers, its tendrils down into the popular culture to where we are today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, do you want to leave it there or, or try to sum up? <laughs> wow, or? sum up. You know what? I think we're always going to have well, a like, problem I, with the sum up. Yeah. <laughs> because, <laughs> because the problem here is that try as we might, Jazz, we try to really organize these thoughts ahead of time and try to follow. But, oh, you know, it's us. You know, we, we go here, we go there, we take this tangent, and then we yeah. come up with an idea that we didn't have what we were talking about before. Um, but, I mean, do, do, you have a, do, you, do you have a reasonable attempt to sum up where we've been and... And what we've been well, talking was, about. As a, well, maybe this isn't a summary of everything. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that sort of shows the, the problem that we're talking about. To, to summarize, we'd have to really simplify and make it this very straightforward narrative, which yes. narratives don't tend to be like that. No, um, no. That's the whole challenge of this whole project we're doing. is, And that's why at the beginning of the program we had yeah. to talk about Things like, well, the, you know, don't get caught up with the details because even in the in the in the space of the hour or so that we have to talk about this, it's really difficult not yeah. to oversimplify the the issue, and that's something that you and I are both sensitive about not doing. But it's so easy to do in a situation like this. But but go ahead but and it, have it some, sort of... some kind of summary or something that okay. approximates one. Well, and I was also going to say, I, I think doing the podcast is a little bit like what you were saying about science. It's an ongoing process, so we have to yes. come back and make corrections and clarify things. Which is why, which which is why the comment section on our podcast is so important. So I do invite listeners to to put comments in there so that we can keep this conversation going because that's what this is. It's a conversation not just between jazz 
and me, but between all uh, between us and our listeners, and and we want to keep that conversation going. Okay, so I, my summary is really to to think about the two sides of this: the subjective and the objective again, and, and maybe the the extreme of the subjective would be conspiracy theories, and the extreme of the objective would be what we were saying about an idea of science in which it's somehow removed from social conditions. And what those what those two things have in common to me is that both of them remove the social. Um, so for those who believe in conspiracy theories, <clears throat> the theory is some kind of story which has been constructed by um, this powerful group, all of whom are on the same page, and that story manipulates the truth of what actually happened. And then outside of that story, if you t take that story away, there's there are the actual facts, that is the objective reality. And that objective reality, uh, they imagine, and certain kinds of scientists also imagine, is never seen through a social lens. So. The conspiracy theory is biased. It's been influenced by social events like political mm. ideologies, but there's this objective reality outside of that which hasn't been influenced by anything about culture or society. So that's where it, that's where the truth lies. Um, and so the person feels helpless because all the external world is allied together in producing this biased story and the only power that that person has is the freedom of being an individual who is not influenced by social conditions or bias. Mm. And then every fact that's offered as a counter to that belief system, um, which to them is not a belief system at all. Right. It's, right. Um, because if it was a belief system, then that would interfere with their sense of having free will or being free. They can't be being influenced by any kind of political ideology. Right, right, right. So they, right. their fact, a fact that's offered to them has to be rejected because it's not fact, it's a biased story. And so, so refusing contradictory empirical evidence, I mean, it, it's, it's almost as if there's no choice. I mean, it... it no, because because it, to to them this is not empirical right. evidence. This is um, something that has been manipulated. But then you were talking about how the other extreme is where uh, science is this this removed objective thing. Which, right. Which... So, so both people who believe in conspiracy theories and people who believe in science as some kind of objective truth believe that objective truth is free of any kind of social or political or cultural or familial influence. They have, they have that but in But interestingly common. enough, they have that in common, that very important thing in common, in fact, that very fundamental thing in common, but interestingly enough, they're the two groups that are often arguing right, with right. each other yeah. about yes. what's true. How interesting. Well, on that very interesting note, uh, we're going to have to uh, let our listeners go. Uh, thanks, Jazz, for um, doing this with me today. And uh, thank you, uh, listeners, for joining us. Please, again, uh, leave some comments so that we can keep this conversation going. But until next time, I'm William Wright for Jasmine Hall. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks. Grapevine is a production of Ether Theater. Music is provided by Chris Snook.